1: committing a heinous crime like murder or adultery or or even suicide does this sin lead to death well yes spiritual death for sure but it doesn't always lead to physical death of course except for suicide it doesn't always lead to that if the sin is confessed it's forgiven if this were not true that would leave out Jeffrey Dahmer and David Berkowitz wouldn't it But it would also leave out the Apostle Paul, it would leave out David, and a host of other people throughout the entire Bible.
0: In today's message, Pastor Dave starts his discussion about the sin that leads to death and what it actually is. When we think death, we normally think of it in the physical sense. But today, Pastor Dave explains spiritual death and hunts for the exact sin that John writes about that always leads someone to it. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of 1 John chapter 5 as he begins his message, The Sin Leading to Death.
1: We're going to be in 1 John 5, verses 16 through 17, so if you have your Bibles, please open them to the epistle of 1 John, or John's first letter, chapter 5. We only have two more studies in this really great book, and I went and looked, and we've been studying this since last June. And we've made our way through this book in about a year, a little less. So um, we have two more studies today and next week. But we're in 1 John 5. If you found your way there, let me read aloud, if you will, if you would follow along. We're only doing two verses, trying to complete John's thought from last week. We're trying to complete John's thought from last week. And he says these in beginning in verse 16 of chapter 5. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Shall we pray? Gracious Father, as we come to your word this morning, um, you know my heart, You, you know what the things that you've put in front of me and the things that I've studied, Lord, and I ask, Lord, that now that I would just step aside and allow your spirit to speak boldly to your children that you've assembled here this morning for such a time as this. I pray what John the Baptist prays, that I would decrease and Jesus would increase and you would speak loudly and boldly to your children assembled here. That your words would come forth with boldness and clarity. That your words would strike their hearts in such a way that they would even have more assurance of who they are in Christ to you, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us this time. We're blessed, Lord, to know that we can come to you and ask that your spirit would guide and lead us through these scriptures because your spirit was the inspiration for these scriptures. Your spirit inspired man to pen these words. So, Lord, help us to understand what's going on today as John writes these words and speaks to our hearts, Lord. May you speak to us boldly, Lord. Thank you for this time. Blessed be to your name. And we pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Let me start off this morning by asking you a question. It's been it's on my heart, and it, is, it it fits with the study. What do the Apostle Paul, Jeffrey Dahmer, and David Berkowitz have in common? Yeah, yeah, they are forgiven. They have more than that that they're in common. First of all, all three of them are murderers. Apostle Paul murdered Christians. Jeffrey Dahmer murdered people, and then he ate them. And David Berkowitz is known as the son of Sam. You might have heard of him from time to time. All three of them. All three of them were sentenced to prison. They've all, in fact, David Berkowitz is still doing time in prison. But as someone said, all three of them have made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. And I might add, All three of them have been used mightily by God to help others come to salvation through Jesus Christ. You know what does this mean? It means that when we get to heaven and we are surrounding the throne of God in a throng of people singing praises to him that you might be standing next to Jeffrey Dahmer or David Berkowitz or the Apostle Paul. Now, you're probably excited about being around the throne of grace with the Apostle Paul. Probably real excited about being standing there next to him and, yo, shorty. No, well, I don't know. What are you going to tell you? You probably have a lot of questions to ask him, meeting him and be exciting. But what about the other two? Are you as excited seeing them in heaven? As you will be seeing the Apostle Paul and the other notable saints that are in the Bible. Does the fact of seeing Jeffrey Dahmer and David Berkowitz in heaven cause you concern? I read this and it really struck a chord to my heart. So I have to tell you this. If this causes you difficulty. Then you really don't understand the power of the cross. You don't have a grasp of the matchless mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, nor do you comprehend the unfathomable potency of His precious blood that makes a miracle like this happen. These are gonna play into what we talk about today, play heavily. So we need to have this understanding. We sang this morning, I love your grace, I love your mercy. Do you love that grace that's only extended to you, or do you love that grace that's extended to all through Jesus Christ? Because that's to whom it is extended, everyone, whomsoever will. But as we come into our verses this morning in 1 John, we are once again faced with difficult scriptures. Some believe that they are the most difficult scriptures to interpret in the entire New Testament. And of all the interpretations that I read and studied, not one of them seemed to answer the questions completely as to what John is saying here. They all seem to fit, and they all have some merit, I might add. What was John thinking when he wrote these things? What was the Holy Spirit speaking to John that caused him to write down, there's a sin unto death? What is the sin unto death that John is recording here? And interestingly, John doesn't explain himself. John does not explain himself in the scriptures when he says there's a phrase, sin that leads to death. So we're left to figure it out by ourselves, this great mystery. But praise God we have the Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us into the truth. There are many opinions There are many thoughts on these scriptures. There are many interpretations of these verses. And as I said before, a lot of them have merit. We do know one thing about these verses. John is speaking about two types of sin. Sin that leads unto death and the sin that does not lead unto death. Let's look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. In order to ascertain what the Spirit is saying here, in my opinion, we first need to look at to whom the apostle is speaking. Note, he says, if anyone sees his brother. If anyone sees his brother. Now, brother is a key word. It means adelphos in Greek. And it means brother literally or figuratively. And in the previous verses of this letter, when John used the word brother, he was speaking about believers. He was speaking about believers. So... To look at the Bible consistently, you need to assume that when John says brother's here, who's he speaking about? Believers. You have to follow along. It's called expositional consistency. This is what John is speaking of. John says if anyone sees a brother, this implies someone of close personal relationship. Someone that you might know better than others. If you see a brother. He's not talking about the sin police who lurk around every corner waiting for you to make a mistake or make a move. He's talking about you seeing someone who you're familiar with. Someone who you're in contact with. A brother. You know, we walk around, hey brother, hey sister. We we use that word in, in the church because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The other word that is important to look at here is the word sin or sinning. In some translations, it says if we see a brother committing a sin. Now, like the word brother, as John spoke of sin before in this letter, he was speaking of consistent, continual, continual and habitual non-repentant sin. This is what he is speaking about. John has already told us that when a believer sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And because of that, we can confess our sins and be forgiven. 1 John 1, 1.9, because he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. So these sins that are committed of ignorance, foolishness, personal weaknesses, even fear, I don't think that's what John's talking about here. I don't see that. John specifically mentions a sin leading to death. And this is where the rub comes in. This is where the difficulty comes in as to what John means by the sin leading to death. But before we tackle this scripture, you need to know that all sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death. Wages of sin is spiritual death. That's what we call it. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We all sin and have fallen short. We've all broken fellowship with God at one time or another. We were born with a sin nature. But there's been a way that we can come back to God through Jesus Christ. So, is this spiritual death the death that John is referring here? Or... Is John saying that some sin could possibly lead to physical death? There are several laws here and there are several theories that I'm going to look at. And I'm going to present them to you because we have to look at the entire thing. John never specifies the sin, does he? He's quite vague here. So let's begin. The first view talks about Someone committing a heinous crime, like murder, or adultery, or or even suicide. Does this sin lead to death? Well, yes, spiritual death for sure. But it doesn't always lead to physical death, of course, except for suicide. It doesn't always lead to that. If the sin is confessed, it's forgiven. If this were not true, that would leave out Jeffrey Dahmer and David Berkowitz, wouldn't it? but it would also leave out the Apostle Paul, it would leave out David, and a host of other people throughout the entire Bible. It would leave them out as well. So this view doesn't really hold merit. It doesn't really hold up, although it has merit, like I said. Another view is making the difference between sin and transgression. And this is what some religions do, mortal and venial. They they, they make a difference between these two sins. We know that sin is basically missing the mark. It could be through weakness. It might be trying to hit the mark, but you just can't. It might be through ignorance. Remember when Paul was writing, he said, I didn't know what it was to mean to covet until the sin came in and said, thou shalt not covet. So it could be done out of ignorance. Now, transgression, on the other hand, is a deliberate and willful disobedience to the command of God. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyhow. But there's a problem with this view as well. Many of us are guilty of willful sin. I mean, everyone that ever told a lie or got angry or took something that didn't belong to them or even those who committed adultery, which they surely knew was wrong, they wouldn't have a chance if this would be it. This doesn't match what John has already told us about confessing our sin. In fact, in back in chapter 3, in verse 4, he declares... Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And then he says that we have the advocate. We have this advocate with the Father. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And what's even worse, you're making God a liar. So it becomes difficult to understand. Others go all the way back to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, and these verses in Hebrews 6 might have caused you some consternation. They might have given you some trouble. Look at Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tested the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again themselves the Son of God and put them up At open shame. Wow. Those who ascribe to this view use the phrase once enlightened, and it refers to baptism. This is where this idea kind of falls apart. Their belief was that any sin committed after a person was baptized was unforgivable. For this reason, they waited to baptize people until they were on their deathbed. This is very similar to those people who take communion and last rites at the deathbed. This is what he's talking about. But there are problems with this interpretation as well. Many problems, many of this exactly the same as before. But if this be the truth, I venture to say I have a sneaky suspicion that a lot of us sinned after we were baptized. That's just a suspicion for my part. I'm sorry. So if that be the case, every one of us would be out of here. We'd be all gone. Another view is that the believer fell into apostasy. Apostasia is the Greek word. It means a defection or revolt. It's a formal disaffiliation from abandonment or renunciation of a religion by a person. It can also be designed with a broader context of embracing an opinion that is contrary to one's previous beliefs. If you go back to Hebrews 6, they hang on the word fall away, falling away. This is a reference to apostasy. John has already told us that the denial of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, he declares, you're an Antichrist if you deny Jesus Christ as Messiah. This could be what he's talking about. Jesus clearly said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. Is it possible? For a person who once claimed Jesus as the Lord and Savior to turn away from him and deny him as Messiah? I believe I might know one or two. Many believe that this apostasy is the sin unto death. But it doesn't quite fit either. Because if you read through the scriptures... True believers in Jesus Christ do not apostate. They are not committing apostasy. You know, once saved, always saved. That group. Only a person who is not a genuine believer in Jesus Christ commits apostasy. This is their theory. This is their theory. So we are stuck with difficult scriptures one more time. What is the apostle speaking about? Is he speaking about physical death? Or spiritual death. I kind of believe he's talking about both. That's I'm gonna kind of support my claim here if you will follow my drift here. Not trying to confuse anybody. Believe me, I studied this all week and I'm really confused. Many think that this is the best interpretation. Many have come to the conclusion. Now, how have they come to this conclusion? Well, They used the Old Testament people of Nadab and Abihu. They were the sons of Aaron who died because they deliberately disobeyed God. They used Korah and her gang. They opposed God and they died. Achan, one of Joshua's men, was stoned to death. He and his whole family because he disobeyed God and stole something out of Jericho. And how about our buddy Uzzah? We studied about him. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem on a cart. It begins to fall. Uzzah puts his hand on the Ark, and God killed him. You might be thinking, well, gee, Dave, that's all Old Testament stuff. Aren't we under the age of grace? Yes, we are. So I'm going to take you to Acts 5, and we're going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. Or how about in 1 Corinthians 11.30, the Christians who, who died because they acted improperly at the Lord's Supper. According to Paul, or 1 Corinthians 5, 1, 11, it suggests that a certain believer offended the Lord would die if he had not repented of his sin. You know, the scripture comes to mind when I read this, too much is given, much is required. Too much is given, much is required. This view says that the sin unto death is willful, continuous, unrepentant sin. And that's what's being said, I think, in John, in this part. Why? Well, in 1 Peter 1.16, God has called his children to holiness. And God corrects them when they sin. If we do not judge, confess, and forsake our sin, God must and will chastise us. We're not punished to our sin in the sense of losing our salvation and being eternally separated. But yet we are disciplined. You can read Hebrews 12.6. Some of us might even be disqualified from service. Here's the thought that John is portraying. There comes a point in time when God can no longer allow a believer in unrepentant sin. The witness is too bad. God can't handle that. He reaches a point and God says, you've suffered enough, my child. I'm taking you home. The death is physical. The death is fickle. The person is saved, but God takes them home. When I read this, I relate this to when Paul says in First Corinthians that some are saved by fire. And I can see this person getting to heaven with his seat of his pants on fire going, Whoo, I made it though. Hey, okay. We're all good here. Whoo, yeah, it's good. Whoop. Why? God at times purifies his church by removing those who deliberately disobey him. The Apostle John makes a distinction between the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death. Not all sin in the church is dealt this way because not all sin rises to the level of the sin that leads to death. Take hypocrisy. Take hypocrisy, one of the sins. One commentator said this, Thank you, Lord, for not dealing with our hypocrisy in this manner. How many of us would be crispy critters after we sing the words, I surrender all? Think about it. In Acts 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, God dealt with intentional, calculated sin in the church by taking the physical life of the sinner. Why? Because God is a just God. You are a sure
0: You've been listening to a teaching from the book of 1 John with Pastor Dave Shank on A Sure Hope. Does your heart tend to ride the turbulent waves of the circumstances you find yourself in? Or are you more of that calm, steady sea that's fairly even and consistent? Well, in this book, John wrote to his readers to grow in their zeal and love for God while refuting those who were teaching false things. There is a steadiness that's encouraged, despite the waves of emotion and turmoil that you may face. Having that steadfast focus on God and His promise of eternal life is what can help your heart be at peace and be calm. If you missed any part of today's teaching, or you'd like to listen to additional messages from Pastor Dave, visit assurehoperadio.com. Perhaps as you were listening, you realized that you have some questions about what you heard. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609 884 Five eight two one. In addition to that, you're welcome to email us at info at com with any questions, concerns, or prayer requests. Would you rather talk to us in person? Then think about joining us this Sunday for a time of God's Word at Calvary Chapel, Cape May. All you need to know is our website, com. Thank you again for taking time to learn from the book of First John today. We hope you'll join us again next time on Assure Hope.
1: Thank you.